Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Where have we been recently in Deuteronomy? Where, where are we jumping in here? What's happening? We're on the other side of the Jordan about to go into... We're on the other side of the Jordan... The people are about to begin the campaign, the military campaign, to take the promised land. Yeah? And Moses has passed leadership on. Moses has passed leadership on to Joshua. Joshua. Privately? Well. In a private dinner and ceremony? No, no. No, no, no. no. How did he do it? In front of all the people. It has to be in front of all the people. Because Moshe has to make it clear that, that Yeshua has his blessing, has, his confi- has Moshe's confidence, uh, and that this is in line with what the divine wants because the people know that it is Moshe who, uh, who speaks, through, speaks with the divine and then passes on what God wants to the people. But so this is really the end of an era and the beginning of a new era. Correct. But for Torah, it's the end. Yes. It's not the end of the Deuteronomic history, but it's the end of the five books. So often there is a lot of discussion about why didn't, why didn't Torah end with Joshua's campaign? Right? Like it it's a weird decision in a way. If the Deuteronomic history continues from Deuteronomy through Kings, why end Torah at Deuteronomy? Because it's the five books of Moses. Well, now it is, but what if it had been the six books of Moses? Like, Jews. Jews, right? It's like... Yes, of course it's the five books of Moses because we have five books. But what if we had chosen to end Torah at the end of the Deuteronomic history? That would make perfect sense. So what do you think the commentary talks about when we talk about why it ends here? I still think it has to do with Moshe. Okay. So, so make that case. Well, he's been our fearless leader for 40 years. So it's definitely an end of a very important chapter. And it's a new day when we go into the land and what that brings. So it does make sense to me. You know, when we go in, it, is a, it could even be a new book. But All right, so those of us who are unconvinced by Pam's argument... What's another argument? To say, okay, yes, it's a natural ending. I, 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 absolutely, and it's a new day when they enter the land, but why not, why not have Torah be... This is the end of one part of it, and then there's the beginning of the next part when they're in the land, right? And that's, that's Torah. Just assuming. Because things are going to be for you anyway. Say it again. What does that mean? Well, everything is going to happen over and over again, so I'm not going to you can read the rest of history through what's happened before. So the cycle is... So you're saying the, the natural cycle of stuff ends here and going into the land just starts the whole thing over. That it's really the same themes. 
Okay, so that this is, because we got the whole story here, is what you're saying. If we look at like humanity and what we tend to do, this is the full collection. Joshua's just a start of another time we're going to do the same exact stuff. And now let's see what the people will do. (laughs) Sarah Moskowitz, talk to me. It is less of an ending. Talk to me. It's in the middle of things. And that's where we always are. Beautiful. The story doesn't end with we get there. Because we never get there. Do we? The minute we're at the edge of, oh, now I'm going to be a grown-up. Now I'm going to be happy. Now I'm going to really be Amy Bernstein. Like this now, right now, and there's the line. And as soon as I cross over that line, right, we've achieved it. And guess what? The, the line keeps moving, people, right? The, it never comes. The promised land is never achieved. It's the journey that's important. It is the journey. It is not the destination. It is not the getting there that matters. It's a mindset. It is a mindset. It is a growth mindset. Yeah? Mm. So like a new step. That we are in a growth mindset that says, as soon as you feel like, okay, this is the thing that's actually going to somehow be the completion, the achievement, fill in what, the blank, whatever that is, n- nope. We got to start all the way back <coughs> at the beginning at Lech Lecha. We have to start all the way back at leave. Leave everything familiar. Leave your father's house. Leave your ancestral homeland. Leave your language. Leave your culture. Leave your people. Leave your habits. Leave who you think you are. Leave all of it. And guess what? As soon as you're standing at the promised land, lech lecha. This is, for the rabbis, this is a very important point about where Torah ends. That we are always on the mountaintop looking over. We are always saying, I have a dream, right? I can see it, but I'm not going to get there. Hopefully, another generation will figure something out and we'll get closer, but we're not going to get there. But so, Yes. And so it's it well it's not that it it's not that it doesn't matter at all. It's not that what we do and learn and achieve isn't important. It's that we tend to put like some kind of idea that once I become a mother, my life will be fulfilled. Okay, now I want to be a grandmother. Right? right? I had a baby at 38. I accepted from the moment I was just happy to be pregnant. I was happy we both survived a horrible horrible situation like and that we both lived and we're both safe and we're both healthy that should have been enough but but now (laughs) right now that I'm seeing her grow up now that okay I I decided I'm not gonna ever attach myself to the idea of grandchildren I started this too late Guess what? But people are living longer. (laughs) (laughs) Says the woman over 90. (laughs) Thank you, Sarah. Um, But I think this, I think it would be a mistake to 
characterize this rabbinic view of cyclicality as being equivalent to, say, the cyclicality of ancient civilizations, that the world kept on going around the same circle. Correct. And never made the what the what the what the Israelites introduced was this notion of an arrow of time. But there may be it's more of a spiral. Yes. So so Richard makes an important point that we shouldn't mistake cyclicality <clears throat> with it just keeps happening the same old way all the time. That's paganism, right? And you do rituals to make sure it keeps going the same way. way. We have the introduction with Israelite religion in the pagan world. We have the introduction of the idea of redemptive history so that there is a point to history. And so each cycle hopefully brings us to a different place when we come back around, even if the themes are the same birth growth development death right even if, even though that's the same and that's what we're celebrating right now is the last harvest before dead time Sukkot is the big party because it's the last harvest before nothing grows and your family starves if this harvest doesn't go well so even though we're going to do that every year there is a sense that, that history is we're in redemptive history that we are moving towards right the messianic Age, so it's an important point of clarification. All right, is that another hand? How do you reconcile this with the fact that going on, there's kings, there's uh, there's a lot of um, uh, portions that are holy or whatever, written probably by people in the future going past, uh, and document the history as it as it proceeds after Moshe. What am I reconciling? Uh, the fact that part of our tradition goes on, it doesn't necessarily cycle uh, because of the, uh, the, the generation of information about history uh, from Yoshua on. Sure, so, so the events change, but what I hear people saying is, so you're going to have a leader, the leader's going to do whatever, then the leader's going to die, then there's going to be another leader. Right? So there are certain things that repeat. It's not that it's the same exact thing or we wouldn't need... We, we wouldn't need another generation. We wouldn't need another person, right? Because if it's just the same thing, but I think there are definitely repetitions of, of themes. Dana? You know, there's comfort in our Jewish repetition in the calendar. So, you know, it, we keep reconstructing it, but, you know, there's a lot of comfort in the story because we have the repetition of all the holidays. So repetitions, in some ways is comforting to us, right? Because we know what's coming, right? right? And we, we know that we're going to look forward after Sukkot to Pesach, right? We might be different at Pesach than we were last Pesach, God willing, hopefully, um, but that we're coming back to Pesach, right? And we come through Shabbat, and we come through Shabbat, and we come through Shabbat. So it's definitely, we get the sense that, that, um, that our observances of the cycle of the year are definitely uh, a comfort. And of course, the rabbis overlaid onto all of those agricultural holidays. They reconstructed those and layered a historical right, layer onto each of those so that they stayed relevant to a community that was no longer agrarian. The way to make it relevant, though, is because every time it comes around, if we learn something from the last one, we look at it with different eyes than we did the first time. Right. Or the so Peter Pitzola talks about the text. The text could only ever be for us a mirror. Only. 
The text can only be a mirror. All we can ever see in the text is what we've experienced. We see the text through our biography, through our history, through our proclivities, through our talents, through our limitations. The text can only be a mirror until what? Uh, until it's not. <laughs> Crafty answer over there. Because um, what am I saying? That's wrong. Right? So the text can only be a mirror until someone else talks about what they see in the text. Then the text becomes a window. When Sarah Moskowitz talks about what she sees in the text, I have now the text as a window into Sarah's understanding of the world and of life and of everything. And it is wonderful to be a student of Sarah Moskowitz. Um, Isn't that the definition of history, actually? Somebody writes about it and somebody else writes about it and then there's an album of what happened. Well, so, so now we get into a question of defining so, history, so, right? Like, no, sorry, no, but it's, way but it's certainly the definition of tourist study. For sure, right? That I can only ever see what I can see in the text based on what I've read, what I've learned, what I've experienced. Torah study means we all get to finally have the text be a window only though if people talk. Only if people share. Only if people have different interpretations. But we don't do that. We don't do that. that. Um, All right. So we're coming to the end of the life of Moshe. Moshe has uh, done what he was supposed to do in terms of giving the people this poem. He's told them, remember I told you when I was crying reading Deuteronomy that night in my bed? Um, He's told them they're going to mess it all up and that they're going to get kicked out of the land that they're working so hard right now to conquer, that they're going to grow fat, and spoiled and lazy and take it all for granted and they're going to mess up so badly that they are exiled from the land. The point being that they need to get it together and if they get it together and return that God will take them back in love. (laughs) This is the assurance right, that we are constantly given by the prophets. We canonize our critics. We make holy the words of the people who tell us we're screwing it up all the time. And they always end with, but if you can get your act together, God is always ready to take you back in love. God is always ready to forgive. Always. And that is the message of the high holiday season that we have just come out of so that we can come to Sukkot Right? With a really light, easy sense of there is hope. I don't, I don't mean that to sound trite. I mean, we can feel lighter and easier about things because we've wiped the slate clean. We believe there's truly an opportunity to change, to do tshuva, to be different, to be better people. And that as a people, if we do that, right, then we can help impact the world. That's really, we're crazy enough to really believe that. Um, as a people and to affirm it at the high holidays and now we're at the end of those high holidays being in this festival of Sukkot and the rabbis got it that this is the moment right before winter right before everything's dead this is the moment to end and begin Torah again because in a way wouldn't it have made more sense to begin Genesis in spring 
at Pesach, when everything is reborn and everything's coming to life and celebrating creation, that would have been a great match. Studying the story of creation at spring, which was the new year for them. Right? In the Torah. It's the new year. We read on the 10th day of the month of the 7th month is Yom Kippur. It's not the new year. So that would have made a lot of sense, but the rabbis... They're genius. They're just brilliant. And they put it here. They put our ending and our beginning just before the dead season. Just before, in some places in the world, everything freezes over. Right? Freezes. Literally. Um, And we won't have life again until, which, even before Pesach, what holiday? Do we celebrate life returning? Even before Pesach? To be shvat. To be shvat is when the sap, the trees begin to pull sap through them that will result in the buds that we see at Pesach in the spring. So the rabbis, the rabbis know it is critical, I, I think, this is just my humble opinion, I think they get it, that it is critical at the dead time when you don't see any movement, when you don't see any growth, that it's critical to focus on beginnings and renewals and starting a new cycle, right? And doing something again and we're doing it different because now it's a new cycle. But you know, also there, there has to be destruction before there can be rebirth. 100%. And it makes sense to almost start at the destruction point because it's clearing the field so you can... But it's interesting that we're reading creation at destruction time. You know, that, yeah, so there needs to be destruction and then rebirth and renewal. It's just interesting that they put the renewal just before the destruction. Yeah. of when, uh, not, not destruction, but yeah, the, the falling away, the withering, if you will, of, of winter. But then we're ready. Hmm? But then we're ready. And then we're ready for... The creation, the new, the new thoughts that we have, or the new way we live, or the... I, I think that I think they hope so. Well, you have to have hope to start. I, no, I think they hope so. Yeah. Uh, Rabbi Micah said the other day that uh, Ezra contributed a lot to the um, calendar, and Ezra lived in Babylonia, right? And the, when they were in Babylonia, they had already seen the destruction of it, and, and they had to restart again. Maybe that was the psychology they were in. It, absolutely, I think that's absolutely formative for us, right? And Because they're the ones, remember, they're the ones who come back and mandate reading this and mandate a cycle of reading this, right? Um, yes, because they got it. That this is the only thing, possibly, that's going to hold us together. Because the temple, guess what? Turns out, can be obliterated. Turns out, right? No one had thought that before, but now it was not only evident, it, it had happened. So we're going to look a little bit at Bezot HaBrachah. Moshe is like a parent who he's given them this whole terrible vision of what, how they're going to mess up and get bad, terrible things happening to them. Um, he then goes through the poem. Remember the Hazinu poem where he calls heaven and earth to witness uh, and, and delivers this poem to them uh, that God has commanded him to give to them. And now we're at the very last part of Deuteronomy where Moshe is uh, 
is going to give his final, and the word is v'zot ha-bracha, and this is the bracha, this is the blessing. So he's going to give a blessing to Bnei Yisrael before his death. So on the deathbed, it is traditional to bless one's children. And we see this a lot. We see this in the ancient world all over the place, right? When Abraham thinks he's dying, right? I mean, so uh, when uh, Yaakov, right? Well, everybody gets it that at the, at the deathbed, you give a deathbed blessing that has very serious, very serious weight, right? Those words are very serious. They carry a magical quality to them because it's the deathbed. Um, and so now we get Moshe um, essentially blessing the people, but some of these do not exactly <laughs> feel like blessings. All right, you want to re- read a little bit of it, Robert, for us? This is the blessing with which Moses, God's envoy, bade the fair, uh, Israelites farewell before he died. He said, I've known I came from Sinai and shone upon them from Seir. God appeared from Mount Paran and approached from Ribaboth Kodesh, lightning flashing at them from on the right. Lover, indeed, of the people, their hallowed are all in your hand. They followed in your steps, accepting your pronouncements. When Moses charged us with the teaching as the heritage of the congregation of Jacob, then God became king, king in Jerusalem. When the heads of the people assembled, the tribes of Israel together, may Reuben live and not die, though few be his numbers. And this he said of Judah, Hear, Adonai, the voice of Judah, and restore him to his people. Though, though his own hands strive for him, help him against his foes. And of Levi, he said, Let your Tumen and Urim be with your faithful one, whom you tested at Massah, challenged at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I consider them not. His brothers he disregarded, ignored his own children. Your precepts alone they observed and kept your covenant. They shall teach your laws to Jacob and your instructions to Israel. They shall offer you incense to savor and whole offerings on your altar. Bless Adonai, his substance, and favor his undertakings. Smite the loins of his foes. Let his enemies rise no more. Of Benjamin, he said, beloved of Adonai, he rests securely beside God, who protects him always as he rests between God's shoulders. And of Joseph, he said, blessed of Adonai be his land, with the bounty of dew from heaven, and of the deep that couches below, with the bounteous yield of the sun and the bounteous crop of the moons, with the best from ancient mountains and the bounty of hills immemorial, with the bounty of earth in its fullness and the favor of the presence in the bush. May these rest on the head of Joseph, on the crown of the elect of his brothers, Like a firstling bull in his majesty, he has horns like the horns of the wild ox. With them he gores the peoples, the ends of the earth, one and all. These are the myriads of Ephraim, 
Those are the thousands of Manasseh. And of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, O Zebulun, on your journeys, and Issachar in your tents. They invite their king to the mountain, where they offer sacrifices of success, for they draw from the riches of the sea and the hidden hordes of the sand. And of God, he said, Blessed be the one who enlarges God. Poised is he like a lion to tear off arm and scalp. He chose for himself the best. For there is a portion of the revered chieftain where the heads of the people come. He executed Adonai's judgments and God's decisions for his... All right, so we're getting that this is not a personal poem. Right? When you get some of the... I mean, to unpack all of it would take a long time. Um, This is clearly a political poem. This is writing about tribes at this point. The eponymous ancestor is the one Moshe is blessing, but this is clearly about tribal units, right? So tell me about how Israel actually came together as a nation. How did Israel actually become a nation? What happened? Are you talking about King David? Yes. Okay. Well, he conquered the lands. All right, well, what about before that? What about before David? What was happening? Uh, A lot of tribal fighting. Are you talking? I don't know. So, okay, judges. We're going to the period of judges. What happens in the period of judges? What's what what's going on in the ancient Near East in this little place called Israel? The tribe, the, um, there, there were wars, and the tribes had to come together under a leader, even though they didn't exactly necessarily love each other. <laughs> they had, you know, they had to fight to survive, and the only way to win was together. So, all right. So we have loosely related Semitic tribes. Loosely related, meaning there's no central authority. There's just tribes that are near each other. When something threatens that loose confederation of tribes, a leader is chosen. A military leader who has enough seichel to deal with whatever the crisis du jour is, that person is called a shofate, a judge. The judge is elected to the military leadership and for a little while is the political leader as well of that federation. Amy, what happened to Joshua? Okay, stop. Don't. You're taking me off. I'll get there. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what we have, right? That, this whole business of coming in and conquering and taking... Pfft, we have a loose confederation of tribes. When there's an emergency in the region, a leader's elected who's a judge. The judge then leads the battle against the Philistines or the Hittites or whoever, and, um, and then everybody goes back to their business. That's what this is explaining. Who those tribes are and some of the characteristics of those tribes. They pull from sand and sea. Okay, well, that means they're on the coast, right? I mean, so these are descriptors of the tribal units. Then we're going to, upon we have the eponymous ancestor, right? So Benjamin. Benjamin was a tribe. It was not a person. 
but we ascribe ancestry to some guy named Benjamin, and we write a big story about how all of these eponymous ancestors of these 12 tribes were actually brothers. All descendants of Yisrael. <coughs> right? B'nai Yisrael. The descendants of Israel. This is all written backwards. We forget that. Right? A lot. the names of all those tribes on the ends of each of the pews. We do. And it's a unity. Exactly. So it is a unity now. Now, right. But when this is written, these texts are about about separate tribes that have their own histories, that have their own political histories with each other. You'll notice it says Yisachar, and then it talks about Yisachar and Zvulun. But it only says, and to you, Issachar, and then it talks about Issachar and Zvulun together. They were very closely related, right? So ju- just those kinds of, of indications in the text tell us about the political history of these tribes. To, to bring it back into the context of the times, it's really no different than you know, Virgil, who is living you know, a thousand years after what we're talking about, this writes a history of Rome, you know, how, we, how they got from Troy to Rome with characters who end up you know, foreshadowing the important people of Rome who are living there now, right? So he, in a sense, is writing Rome's history backwards. And so you seem to be suggesting, Richard, that people are going to be more familiar with Virgil and that whole thing. <laughs> I'm like, sure, yeah, it's exactly like that. It's exactly like that. Definitely. Some of us are not quite as, as like... Uh, schooled as as Richard, uh, so so you get this. So you get a feel for like the the poem is uh, is is describing these relationships between these tribes. Uh, they have you know histories before they come together as a confederation, before they come together as a nation. All right. Yes. You're just confused? I have done my job. <laughs> Where did all these people get together when they left Egypt before they got to Egypt? During Joseph time? When did who get together? These tribes are indigenous. No, but going using the historical kind of horizon, you go from Adam, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. In Egypt, they multiply. I get it. In the desert, they camp by tribe, which would have, in our story, would have been their ancestral houses. Loosely, not loosely, related clans form tribes. You have nuclear families, then you have clan, then you have tribe. So within the tribe, member of Levi, we have the Gershonites, the Merarites. Those are clans. There was a, probably a Mushite clan and an Aranid clan. So, you know, those are your clans, and then clans together to 
come together, uh, they become, the bigger unit is the tribe. So in the historical journey, they, these evolve between the time they went to Egypt and the time they left. Okay, let's be careful that this, when you say historical, are you, Torah's history? Yeah. According to Torah, they multiply in Egypt and they continue to multiply in the desert, presumably, right? And they're hanging out as tribes. And then they each take territory when they take the promised land. That's, the, that's Torah's this poem, narrative. In this poem, Moses is now telling the people as a whole the attributes of the other tribes. Well, he's blessing them before he dies. To, to each tribe, right? He's, he's blessing. It's, it's using the model of blessing your children on the deathbed, but he's blessing the tribes because he's, he's the father of all of them to some extent, right? And so he's blessing all of the people by tribal unit. But I think, as you said, he's making a political statement, too. Yes. Some of these are clearly way more favored than others. And that's how scholars sometimes date these texts, right? Right. They date the text by who's hanging out with whom in the text and who's favored and who's not, who's big and who's small, because we know from history some of that. You know, like which territories were ascendant and which were descendant um, and who had alliances with whom. Uh, and so that's often how scholars date the text. Um, is that you know Judah is now ascendant because David, right, is from the tribe of Judah, so, right? So Judah becomes ascendant in that sense. All right, did I so see somebody Joshua else? Are we good? Is, as you, can we get back to Joshua? And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you, What do you want to know about Joshua? Well, I mean, he's, he's, he has given us the whole history before about what has happened, and he talks about Joshua leading them forward, mm-hmm. and yet he only here. He's talking about all the tribes. and He's blessing the tribes. Blessing the tribes with no mention of who's going to be leading them. He's already done that. Okay. He's already told them who's leading. He's already put his hands on Joshua and made him leader in front of all the people. This is Moshe's moment. You're trying to, y'all keep trying to take Moshe's moment. This is not about Joshua. <laughs> Joshua's not been installed yet. Moshe's still alive. This is Moshe's death. Deathbed scene. This is like the big tearjerker, and y'all keep. Oh, I think Joshua. Like Joshua has a whole book. He's coming. He's gonna. The sun is gonna stand still. The walls of Jericho are gonna fall. He get. He gets his time. He gets his moments. Trust me. This is Moses, the greatest prophet ever to arise in Israel. The first, in some ways. Prophet to all Israel, humblest man in the world, meets God face to face. Joshua, little pipsqueak upstart. All right, so, so this is Moshe. Um, we're going to come towards the. Y'all can tell how I feel about Moshe this year. Because um, anyone who's learned with me for any number of years knows. Exactly. Sometimes I'm hanging out with Moshe and other times, yeah, I'm completely done with him. But this year, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling I'm feeling it for Moshe this year. So let's look at 34, 1. Okay. 
somebody's got to read. Elena reads extremely well. Moses went up okay. the steps of Moab to Mount Nebo to the summit of Pisgah, opposite Jericho, and Adonai showed him the whole land. Gilead, as far as Dan, all of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, the whole land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the Negev, the plain, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zohar. And Adonai said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will assign it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you shall not cross there. So Moses, the servant of Adonai, died there in the land of Moab as the command of Adonai buried him in the valley of this land of Moab near Beth Peor, and no one knows his burial place to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were dimmed and his vigor unabated. And the Israelites bewailed Moses on the steps of Moab for 30 days. The period of wailing and mourning for Moses came to an end. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands upon him and the Israelites heeded him doing as Adonai had commanded Moses. Never again did there arise in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom Adonai singled out face to face for the various signs and portents that Adonai sent him to display in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his courtiers and his whole country. And for all the great might and awesome power that Moses displayed before all Israel. We should be strengthened. Uh, we'll, we'll begin Genesis in a moment. So Moshe goes up from Moab to Mount Nebo, to the summit of Pisgah, opposite from Yericho. And God shows Moshe the entire land. And God says, this is the land I swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will assign it to your offspring. And I've let you see it with your own eyes, but you shall not cross there. And Moshe does. Vayamat sham Moshe. We're told that he is 120. His eyes are undimmed and his koyach unabated. So Moshe dies with vigor. He dies still strong. He dies still like still you can't even feel like at least he's out of his misery, right? Well, he's out of his misery leading the Jewish people. That's, that is not a small burden of which to be relieved, trust me. But, um, so he's done with that, but, he, but he's, like, he's, he's, still, he's still vibrant, vital, and he's alone. He's alone on Mount Nebo probably alone with God. Oh, so Susan's going to try to make it better now saying he's alone with God. <laughs> he's not that happy with God. Hmm? He's not that happy with God. I, I, don't, I can't imagine Moshe's very happy with God either. Richard? That's the ultimate price for having turned to look at the burning bush. 
Because, because he is the one who took the chance to see God face to face, he ends up dying and seeing God. That is a heavy interpretation that's not going to make us feel any better, but is incredibly lovely that it is the price for having turned to look at the burning bush. It is the price for paying attention. It is the price for saying, finally, after a lot of haggling, okay. The price is loneliness. The price is being alone. That truly is. If we, if we really think about it, that is the price. The price of leadership, the price of turning to look at that bush and not going, okay, I'm getting my flammable flock out of here, um, but to stay, right? To notice that the bush lo'ukal is not being consumed. The ultimate price is loneliness. So you make uh, another really beautiful point. God is alone too. So partly the rabbis want to say this is why God creates humanity. Because God is alone. And so God finds a companion in Moshe. And the sneh, the bush, is the test of will you be my partner? And only if you stop and turn aside to look and hang out with curiosity long enough to notice the bush is not being consumed, only then will I know that you are a suitable companion for me. That the sneh is a test. The rabbis set up the sneh as match.com for God. We all have our that the sneh has been burning forever. And it's not until Moshe that somebody swipes. I don't know which way you're supposed to swipe. <laughs> swipes right. Or, right? Uh, that, that Moshe swipes right. Moshe says, I'm in. Without even realizing what he's saying. When he stops, when he looks, when he stays, when he's curious, when he's there, when he's open. He doesn't even realize the consequences, but God does. So the question some people want to ask is, so why? Why? If this is your companion, this is your closest person, why does he get such a punishment? Hasn't he done everything he's supposed to do, including argue with you and risk your wrath on behalf of this horrible people, this disloyal, constantly messing up, constantly ridiculous people? Moshe risks everything to even argue with God to spare them, and this is his fate? Because he, what, struck a rock instead of talked to it? Really? I just don't feel any better about it this year. Like, I don't feel any better that Moshe pays beyond the ultimate price of being lonely in life. He's going to get yanked out of life alone, just catching a glimpse of what he spent his whole career trying to build. Okay, I feel better about it, and maybe you could see it through my mirror. Okay. Okay. The way I interpret this is that if you continue to say, 
I just want to, wait, don't I now get to go take them into the promised land? What kind of punishment is this for me? Rather than saying that, you get to say, and my work is done. And no, I'm not going to see my granddaughter get married or your daughter's great-grandchildren. If you continue to say, but I just want to do that thing, and I just want to do that, then you're never content. Then you're never saying, and I have led a life and led people and been a model for people, so now they can go on, and my work is done. So I feel better about I'm it. so glad you feel better. On the other hand, based on this story, I can see an argument for being an atheist. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Right? It's like, really? And based on the Torah. So this, they say the same thing when the story of Rabbi Akiva is told, right? That Akiva, Akiva teaches Torah, Akiva risks everything, and Akiva is murdered, murdered and murdered by the <coughs> Romans by having his skin flayed off. And... You know, the angels in heaven, according to the Midrash, are weeping, saying this is his, you know, life, and this is his reward. But I think Richard's, Richard's commentary about the, the price is very profound. It's hugely profound, and it's, it's hugely true. Yes. That's why it's so profound, because that's the truth. But linking the two. But I, I'm with Jody on this one. Yeah, I, I knew you would be. be. <laughs> I mean, we're all to say, I mean, we have a choice, right? We, we don't have a choice about what happens to us, but we have the choice about how we react to it or how we think about it. What's our narrative going to be? How are we going to interpret this story? So unless you want Moses to never die or to die really sickly and dimmed and abated, he dies. He dies having lived his whole life with clarity. No bad moments. Well, bad moments, but no, 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 you know, pain at the end, no misery at the end. We talked about, you know, we see that as misery. No, he got to live his whole life all the way through to see where his children will go. So I'm not, I mean, unless you want him to keep living or to die miserably, then this is a pretty good death. Yeah. Okay, so you two feel better. I'm so glad. <laughs> well, I'm choosing to. Uh, well, that's great. Choosing. Good bully for you. Go ahead. <laughs> well, it's not here, clearly, but where did I get the story that God kissed Moses? Is that it? Because here, at least, God buries him. Uh, is it in Talmud or Rabbinic or somewhere else? Um, that he, he dies Alpi Adonai. He dies by, it's translated as the command of okay. God, but, but really the means. Midrash is he dies Alpi Adonai by the mouth of God, God right. meaning that God kisses Moshe and takes yes. Moshe's soul from him in this, in this very intimate <clears throat> moment. Because the rabbis, the rabbis too, don't feel good about this. Right. The rabbis feel terrible about this. So they translate Alpi Adonai as a right as a beautiful, intimate God's, moment. Yes, it was God's. It, it was the kindest thing he could think to do. You're not happy when somebody dies. No, I know. I get it. No, I get it. I don't mean to push the point. I'm just saying. <laughs> there are times I'm better at it, and it's time. And it's time for him to move on. And it's time for Joshua. Like it's time. It's time for a new leadership. It's. A, I get it. I get it. 
I'm telling you, this year, I'm giving you Yael Shai because I own my stuff. So let's look at Yael Shai. <laughs> so go to the second page of Yael Shai. In this scene of remarkable tenderness, Moses climbs the mountain and looks at the land that his people will enter. God then takes his life with a kiss, according to Rashi, and then buries Moses in a mysterious and unknown location. With Joshua in position to take over, Moses' only job now is to let go of his life. Our only job is to let go of Moses. It is harder than I thought it would be. I'm sure Joshua was great and all, but the text itself says that Israel never knew another prophet like Moses. Even though I knew it was coming, Moses' loss is a tough one to take. Something about his struggle and his grit, his insecurity and his faith made me feel close to him as I read about his journey each week. I feel a great sadness and loss when he climbs that mountain and dies. I feel clingy to Moses and to all the real people in my life whom I want to remain alive forever. Why does he have to die? Why does everyone have to die? I'm okay with not being okay with this. I'm okay. I don't need to feel better about this. I feel really crappy about this. I feel really crappy about how it ends for him. He got a raw friggin' deal, and I, that's how I feel about it this year. And I don't need to feel better about it because, I, because I'm, I'm clingy this year. I just feel clingy this year to Moshe, to his greatness, to his willingness to put up. And I know he can't live forever. Nobody can live forever. It doesn't mean it has to happen this week. And it doesn't mean it has to happen this way. And it doesn't mean, and maybe I wanted to be sick. Maybe I wanted to be really sick so that when he dies, I'm like, thank God that's over. Because that's how I felt with my father. Did I love it that he died at 69? Heck to the no. Did I love it that he got cancer and was dead six months later? Of course not. Was I glad he was out of pain? Yes. But that's the only way sometimes we feel relief at someone's death is when they've been suffering, when they're yanked out of life. You know, vibrant, yes, on the one hand, we get to say, wow, they live till their last day, so vibrant and so whatever. And it's a different kind of hit to us, right, when we're still hanging on because they're still who they've been for us and to us. And so we have to, the work, of course, is letting go. The work, of course, is identifying where we're clingy. It's identifying why, what's happening for me that I feel so clingy to Moshe this year, right? And, and, uh, and I think the practice, which we do at 11.15, is to sit and hold that with just a lot of compassion and a lot of room and a lot of gentleness and a lot of respect and a lot of love that we're clingy and we don't want people to die and we don't want loss, and we don't want change, and we don't want stuff that scares the crap out of us. And like, I'm okay with the fact that that's who we are. And this year, I'm just very in touch with how hard it is to let go. And, and that we have to is of course the answer, of course, that's why Torah ends like this, duh. That's the end, because that's the end. That's the end because that's the cost, that's the price, and that's the end. We, we all are gonna climb that mountain and we're all gonna, right? 
We're all gonna have to let go of our lives. I get it. And I think this, this teaching for me is about, so wow, that's, we can just notice how that is for us this time, this loss, this change, this person. You know, you know I talked about my mother at, at Rosh Hashanah. I'm sure that has a little something to do with it, that she died on Eretz and Torah a year ago. I mean, of course it has something to do with it. Um, all the sadness, all the loss, all that didn't happen, all that didn't get fixed, all that didn't get addressed, all that will never be fixed. It, it's about, I believe, allowing the text, allowing our story to touch where we are right now and allowing that to be okay. Allowing ourselves to be not okay with Moses dying, with this one dying, with that one dying, with my own youth dying, with all, with all the things we have to let go of to be human and to complete this journey. And, and I think uh, El Shai really put her finger on it, right? That it's about it's about the ways it's so hard for us to let go. So look at her um, third page. If I could just the, say the third thing. paragraph. The irony is that with all that loss and death, that's the new beginning. So we're going to the third paragraph. And Judaism and its infinite wisdom reminds us of the cycle of death and life in the Torah itself. We read this Parsha of Moshe's death often at the same moment, Simchat Torah, as we restart the cycle over again. Moses' exhale becomes Adam's inhale. We can and should grieve the loss of Moses and all who have died and will die. We can fear our own deaths, but we have a reminder every year that underneath all the drama and grasping in life, we can let go and find God again. We can come panim al panim, face to face, with life, with breath, and with one. We turn to Genesis. Bereshit bara Elohim et ha-shamayim ve'ta'aretz. Ve'aretz hayta tohu vavoshu vohu v'choshech al panei tehom. Beruach Adonai merechefet al panei ha-mayim. Vayavdel Elohim, no, Vayomer Elohim, Yehi Or, Vayehi Or. Vayavdel, Vayar Adonai Ta'or Kitov, Vayavdel Elohim, Bena Or, Uvena Choshech. Vayikra Elohim Laor Yom, Velachoshech, Velachoshech Kara Laila. Vayehi Erev, Vayehi Boker, Yom Echad. We have in the beginningness. God creating Shemayim and Aretz, heaven and earth. And Aretz, earth, was Tohu Vavohu, was words that we don't really know because it's pre-creation. We don't have them. We don't have that situation anymore. So we don't really know how to translate that. Pre-creation ooze. The Choshech Apnei Tehom, and there was darkness over the face of the deep. And a spirit, a wind of God, Merachefet al was hovering over the face of the depth. And for some cosmic, according to the Kabbalists, loving reason, God speaks and creates, in God speaking, creates light. And God sees the light and calls the light day. God separates the light from the dark and calls the 
light day and calls the dark night and there was evening and there was morning day one notice evening then morning hence beginning our holidays at night there was evening and there was morning one day so it begins at Erev, it begins at evening, and goes through the day until the next evening. So the day's over when you get to evening. We have day one, we will leave ourselves with the question, so what's there already before God speaks? The earth, void. And? Choshech. There's darkness. And there is Tehom. There's the deep. Right, that's all there already. <coughs> right? Um, and God speaks and creates or. The first thing created is or, is light. 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 Where's the sun? <coughs> oh, that's day three. All right, so I'm going to leave you with those questions to bring you back to Torah study next week when we will be looking at the story of creation. Uh, and I'm very, very excited that we are in the first year of the triennial cycle this year. We are back to the beginning of every Parsha. Uh, so you don't even have to wonder where it was starting because we'll be starting at the beginning of every Parsha, most likely unless we don't um, and uh, as we go into Simchat Torah uh, may we acknowledge where it's hard for us to let go may we acknowledge that all of letting go is work for us uh, and that when we can do that work then we can lean into and accept and be open to the amazing forces of life that are ready uh, to work on our behalf to help new things uh, come and new things exist and new things be and may we not lose the trust that that is always possible as long as we have breath Shabbat Shalom You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California For more information go to our website www.ourki.org